Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football season is right around the corner, and Bet Online has you covered with all of the college and pro odds, contests, parlays, and wagers. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B L E A V 50, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it is as always a podcast welcome 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 everybody it is a glorious august 23rd according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is you may be listening. Now that I've really thought it out, I'm not sure what makes this such a glorious August 23rd. Is it any different than the other August 23rds? I'm not exactly sure. What were we doing last year on August 23rd? Uh, Maybe that August 23rd podcast last year was just as magical as this year's uh, August 23rd podcast. Maybe it's a whimsical August 23rd. Who knows? But uh, just things that pass through my mind as we start recording here. At least I'm pretty sure we're recording this. I am yes, I am unfortunately recording all of this. That is that is correct. Welcome to the show, everybody. I hope you all are having a fantabulous, fantabulous day. It turns out that uh, on the last August twenty third, we were talking about uh, preseason week two in the NFL research on the Washington football team and their outlook headed into twenty twenty two, which I nailed exactly correct because I said they were going to go seven and ten, and lo and behold, they went seven and ten. And uh, the Minnesota Vikings. Oh, talking about the Minnesota miracle and what the aftermath looked like for that defense. Case Keenum, Stephon Diggs, and the Vikings organization. All very, very tedious and boring stuff that I regret recording in hindsight, but it was the middle of a pandemic in August. I hadn't really seen people in about a year, and uh, we were really diving into the nitty-gritty of NFL football. And now, in a weird, weird bit of an ironic twist, I am going to have more nitty-gritty football analysis coming at you today. And it's not going to be like X's and O's or going through a oral history or anything like that. I do want to talk about the Los Angeles Rams a bit here on the show today, and that's going to be 
uh, a topic that I've been thinking about for the past few days. I recorded a little bit with our friend Juju Talk Sports uh, about the Los Angeles Rams and my fascination with this team. It's going to be very vague and kind of just talking out my thought process on air, but I think I have something interesting to provide on the Los Angeles Rams as we head towards the beginning of the NFL season. And I'm not really going to do X's and O's analysis. One of the things that I say is that it's, I don't, I'm not the foremost expert in X's and O's football analysis. I can do a little bit of X's and O's football analysis. And this year I can probably do less than I could in the past because during the pandemic year and during 2018, I was doing some in-depth football analysis and scouting and learning about two high safeties and zone defenses and QB spies. And I know about as much as someone who plays a lot of Madden football when it comes to like X's and O's football analysis. And some of the stuff is foreign to me. A lot of the language I'm an expert in because I've been watching football my entire life. And now I've been covering football for what is about to be our fourth season. This is our fourth season covering NFL football. And I've been doing this for years and years, and I've gotten better at the analysis and the sports talking points of it. And I haven't gotten great at the X's and O's because I haven't applied myself to that skill specifically. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the Los Angeles Rams. And we've done long-form podcasts on the Rams before. I, I remember back during the early pandemic days, we did a full podcast about what was wrong with the Los Angeles Rams. In fact, I think it was the first weekend that the pandemic was going on. Like, what the hell happened to the Los Angeles Rams? In fact, it was one of the most popular podcasts that I'd ever done up to that point was what the hell happened to the Los Angeles Rams, where we were talking about how they go from making the Super Bowl to missing the playoffs. Uh, I said in 2019 that it would be idiotic for them to give Jared Goff a contract extension. Now, technically, I was advocating for them to get either Jake Fromm or Daniel Jones as the alternative, which was not a great alternative. They just shouldn't have locked themselves down to a long-term Goff contract, and they did, and they came to regret it, and they admitted their mistake and traded Jared Goff. And in March of 2021, after Goff had been traded, um, the report came out from a, uh, it was a female reporter from ESPN. I can't remember who it was now, but there was this big report about how Jared Goff and Sean McVay were at odds. By the end of the year, they weren't talking to each other. Uh, if you might remember, this was the 2020 season where John Walford started a playoff game for the Rams, and then Goff got hurt because or he got hurt in the Seahawks game and, and the, McVay wanted to start Walford in the first place just because he was tired of, of having Goff as his quarterback and ultimately they got eliminated and a couple weeks later were trading two first round picks and Goff for Matthew Stafford which was only able to happen because Matthew Stafford wanted to play for the Rams and the Detroit Lions were courteous enough to take a lesser offer to facilitate a trade to where Stafford wanted to go, where we now know in hindsight, if they had taken the best offer on the table, which was Carolina offering Teddy Bridgewater and the eight pick in the 2021 draft, that they could have traded Matthew Stafford for Micah Parsons. Tough shit. Didn't break their way on that one. Instead of Micah Parsons, they got two first-round picks and Jared Goff and Man Campbell and his Hard Knocks team that is uh, still in the shitter and rebuilding that football team. And the Detroit Lions made that move, and Stafford went to the Rams, and yada, yada, yada. We know the story there. So we've done a full-scale podcast about what was wrong with the Rams then. Then we did a full-scale podcast about the Goff and McVay tension back in March of that year. And then during football season, we had the week-to-week -week analysis, and then 
right before the Super Bowl, I spent three hours writing a basically a magazine profile. It was 40 minutes long. We talked about it on this podcast. Uh, basically a 30 to 40 minute long profile about how the Los Angeles Rams with Aaron Donald and Sean McVay as the stable foundation went back to the Super Bowl, whereas three years ago, the team was 75% players that were drafted or acquired by Jeff Fisher. And within two years, Sean McVay went to the Super Bowl with 75% of Jeff Fisher's players. And then by 2021, there were three players still on the Rams who were part of the Sean McVay, or sorry, who were, who were acquired by Jeff Fisher. It was Aaron Donald, Johnny Hecker, the punter, and a rookie Tyler Higby. A rookie Tyler Higby was also part of the, the original Jeff Fisher uh, group of Los Angeles Rams. And so the Rams made the Super Bowl in 2018, and they made it back to the Super Bowl in 2021. And I think it was February 1st that we did this podcast, or maybe it was the last week of, of January. But you should check out that episode that we did, because it's still really, really prevalent. And how I'm fascinated by when you start with the foundation of greatest defensive player in the history of the NFL and premier coach in the NFL. I'm not saying Sean McVay is the best in the NFL, but we're talking about one of the five to seven coaches who we know adds value to a team because he's really smart at offense. And he adds value through playmaking or play calling the way Bill Belichick does, the way Andy Reid does, the way Mike Tomlin does, the way that Pete Carroll had the reputation for in the past, uh, the way John Harbaugh does. Those coaches that we think of as indispensable NFL head coaches, Sean McVay, is one of those, and it's without question. So when you're starting with that foundation of the coach and best defensive player in the NFL, how do you build around that? And the way the Rams did it was so fascinating because it was a mix of hitting on Cooper Cup in the third round of the draft and and being, yes, F them picks team with Von Miller and with Cooper Cup and all of that, but it was also, I'm sorry, with Von Miller and Jalen Ramsey and... Uh, trading for, I think it was Dante Fowler at the time, but then it was Leonard Floyd. But anyways, they're like, screw the salary cap, screw the picks. But they also drafted Cooper Cup in the third round of the draft. And they found players like that that helped build out a winning team. And it was fascinating how they got there because it was taking risks that a team like the Rams could afford to take. Like trading all those draft picks for Matthew Stafford because Matthew Stafford wanted to play for them like trading all those picks for Jalen Ramsey because they could get out of Goff's contract and because they get they could get out of Todd Gurley's contract. The Rams in 2020 were looking so screwed and they were able to turn the corner so truly, like so not effortlessly, but they were able to rebound within two years to the point where they were making the Super Bowl with stability at quarterback and what I think was the competitive edge for the Rams, which is greatness at specific positions. Aaron Donald is the best defensive player any of us have seen in our lifetime in the NFL. Jalen Ramsey is the best corner to enter the NFL in the last five to 10 years. And if Jalen Ramsey retired tomorrow, he would make the hall of fame. He's made three first team all pros in five seasons. He could retire tomorrow and be a hall of famer. And 
um, Cooper Cup, if he's not the best receiver in the NFL coming off the Triple Crown season, Cooper Cup is one of the five best receivers in the NFL, and they drafted him in the third round, and he's a homegrown, developed talent, and all of that stuff. So when you have champion, or not champion, like coach who adds value, one of the, the seven special coaches who adds value in the NFL, and you have that best defensive player, and you have best corner, and you have, if not best wide receiver, like top playmaker in the NFL... When you have those pieces and you've built stability around the rest of it, it's good enough to make a championship. But when it's not stable around them, it misses the playoffs or it loses in the second round to the Packers. The, the margins were so thin for the Rams to get to that place and so many things broke their way, like the Packers losing in the divisional round that the, and the Kansas City Chiefs throwing up on themselves against the Bengals in the conference championship. So many good things broke their way that the Los Angeles Rams ended up going from four seed to champion, and it wasn't super surprising. They were the fifth best team in the NFL all season. It wasn't super surprising when they won the championship. It was one of those situations where it's like, oh, I would have thought it might have been the Packers. It might have been the Bills. It might have been the Chiefs. But after that, I could kind of believe the Rams. Like Maybe you thought the Bucks were a better team, and then the Rams absolutely dismantled Tampa Bay, and they were up... What was it like? They could have, if not for Cam Akers fumbling at the goal line, they would have been up 34 to 3 at halftime against the Buccaneers. Like, just dismantled Tampa Bay. Clearly a better team. We were wrong in our evaluations at the start of the year or at the start of the playoffs. I mean, clearly better than Tampa Bay. So, like, one of the four best teams in the NFL won a championship. Whereas if the Bengals had won a championship, it would have been absolutely baffling because no one had the Bengals as even a top 10 team in the NFL going into the playoffs. And so, you know, the Rams were that team that was really good last year. And I'm so fascinated because, okay, they're not built on the strength of the quarterback, but now they have the built-in strength of stability at the quarterback position. Matthew Stafford is the fourth most valuable player on the Rams roster which is stable as to the point where like Jared Goff was like getting ready to be benched for John Walford, right or wrong. Like Jared Goff was ready to be benched for John Walford and Stafford is the fourth best player on the team. And I'm surprised that the Rams aren't viewed within the construct of, Hey, they should be one of the favorites to repeat. I saw that they're like the fourth highest odds in the NFC to win. And when most people are listing the best teams in the NFC, I think the Packers, the 49ers, the Bucks come up a lot in this conversation, even the Cowboys, although I don't think anyone's saying the Cowboys are better than the Rams. And I'm fascinated by that because when I'm thinking about the Rams and a team that's built on three players and stability around the rest, maybe injuries happen and everything falls apart with the stability, at which point, like, yeah, of course, no one can survive the catastrophic level of injuries that, say, Baltimore had last season or the catastrophic level of injuries Kansas City had during that playoff run where they made the Super Bowl and got crushed by Tampa Bay. Yeah, no one can survive that level of amazing injuries regardless of how good Patrick Mahomes is or how good Travis Kelsey is or how good Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, and Cooper Cup are or how good the the scheming of Sean McVay is. What I'm so fascinated by with the Rams is that should be easy to replicate And at the same time, I don't see a ton of people who look at the Rams and say that is immediately a team that can win a championship. In the way that we look at Kansas City and every year pencil them in the NFC championship game. Or we look at the Bills and say the Bills are 
they add Vaughn Miller from the Rams, they're automatically a championship favorite. Or the Packers can lose Devontae Adams, but we're still penciling them in as a championship favorite. And my mind initially thinks that we've seen Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid do it four years in a row. We've seen Buffalo do it two years in a row. We've seen Green Bay do it for 15 years, sometimes on and off, but Aaron Rodgers has made six conference championship games and the best team he ever had was 15 and one and didn't make the conference championship so basically Aaron Rodgers has been a championship contender seven times in 15 years we're used to seeing it with those teams and I think we're not used to seeing it with the Rams even though the Rams have made two Super Bowls in the last four years which no NFC team has made two Super Bowls in four years other than the Legion of Boom Seahawks going back I guess going back 20 years, no, not since the Packers of the 90s has a team in the NFC gone to multiple, gone to two Super Bowls in even four years, besides those Seahawks that went back to back years. And if the team is built on the strength of those three players, shouldn't it be easier for them to get back? And then my mind kind of goes in the other direction of like, well, part of the system working without having a quarterback who elevates the game in a way that Mahomes does or Josh Allen does where like we're watching them play in the playoffs and Mahomes and Allen and Lamar Jackson are just like changing the entire constructs of games and Mahomes and Allen are going back and forth in that playoff game and there's just no defense part because the rules have been set up that way part because of the skill level of those players and I look at that and think so is the the Chiefs are built on Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, and stability. I guess Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill also in the mix. But say they're built on two great receivers, best quarterback in the league, best offensive coach in the league, and just stability around the rest. You don't look at the, the Chiefs roster and say there are seven Hall of Famers on that team, like we said with the Legion of Boom Seahawks. There are three Hall of Famers on the Kansas City Chiefs. It is Patrick Mahomes, it is Travis Kelsey, and it is Andy Reid. And those are the three, and there are no more than those three who are NFL Hall of Famers. Even counting Tyreek Hill, you can count Tyreek Hill in the mix too. Tyreek Hill will get close to the Hall of Fame. He's got like more work to do with Miami if Tyreek Hill's going to make the Hall of Fame. Like three Hall of Famers on the Chiefs as opposed to say like six or seven on the Legion of Boom Seattle Seahawks and the Rams obviously Matthew Stafford's not a Hall of Famer I know people wanted to start that conversation after he won the Super Bowl they have Aaron Donald Hall of Famer Jalen Ramsey Hall of Famer they have Sean McVay who will make the Hall of Fame as long as he coaches for a certain amount of time because for some reason we still do the thing where we say you have to coach at least a decade or you have to play at least a decade in order to make the Hall of Fame where I argue that Quentin Nelson could retire tomorrow and make the Hall of Fame. He's played four years. He's first-team All-Pro three times. Quentin Nelson could retire tomorrow, and he would be a Hall of Famer, even if he only played four years. Sean McVay, Hall of Fame. Aaron Donald, Hall of Fame. Jalen Ramsey, Hall of Fame. Cooper Cup's going to at least have an argument, even if he doesn't get there. And Matthew Stafford is a base level of good. And Andrew Whitworth might make the Hall of Fame, too. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out for, for Whitworth, but... Basically, the point stands like the Rams are in that same group as Kansas City, where 
I would think that they would be a team that we just pencil in every year to go back again and again and again. And obviously things broke their way last year, and obviously having Von Miller helped, and they are probably going to want to get rid of that Leonard Floyd contract sometime in the near future. I just thought they would be a team that we pencil in as champion good. And I'm going back and forth on this, which is like, does having a team built on three players who are the best at what they do, you know, Cooper Cup, call it a playmaker or receiver, whatever. Cooper Cup, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald. Those three players are the best at what they do in the league. They elevate their team in ways that no one else at their position is doing as much as them. Maybe there are a couple corners who are as equal to Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey, the best corner to enter the NFL in the last five years. Aaron Donald, obviously best defensive player in the sport, and Cooper Cup, you know, if, again, I know he had the triple crown last year. I know he's 29, so I will at least preface and say at least in the top five, at least in the top five for Cooper Cup in regards to playmaking ability. And is the difference between, and I know it's not an, an apples-to-apples apples comparison in this case, is it because of the quarterback? Is it that all of that is not enough to overcompensate a quarterback that has made one Pro Bowl and and is like tier two and a half of quarterback in that tier where we talk about Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson and Derek Carr, which is like, hey, if everything breaks right for them, they can be the best player on a champion team. And for Matthew Stafford, everything broke right for him. He was the fifth most valuable person on the field for the Rams on a team that won the Super Bowl. And, you know, it wasn't easy for them to win the Super Bowl either. So is is the quarterback so important? And obviously, like I said, the Chiefs and the Rams are not apples-to-apples apples comparisons. Is the difference between Patrick Mahomes and Matthew Stafford three Hall of Fame players at three different less valuable positions... And it's kind of weird that that's the way that we're thinking about this, because in my mind, I would say, of course not. And of course, I'm underselling the supporting cast of the Kansas City Chiefs. Of course, I'm underselling the the abilities of Andy Reid to influence football games. And I might be underselling Sean McVay's ability to, you know, people talk about, oh, Sean McVay, this offensive genius. The thing that I gave credit to Sean McVay for last year was, hey, Sean McVay was really, really smart when it came to diagnosing the team that he had and changing his offense accordingly. He was really, really smart when it came to changing what his offense was because personnel, the Rams were one of the, the Rams were one of three teams last year in the entire NFL that even made the playoffs while having less time of possession than their opponents during the entire season, they had less time of possession than their opponents. And the math behind it is when you run the ball, the clock will run 30 to 40 seconds uh, of play clock because when you run the ball, unless you get out of bounds in the final two minutes of a, of a half, the clock is always going to keep running. Whereas when you pass the ball, there's an increased percentage chance of an incompletion, which is going to stop the clock. When you throw more, you hold the ball for less time than if you ran the ball every single time. That's just like basic logic behind it. And the Rams were an incredibly, incredibly pass-heavy team last year because that's just what personnel dictated. But everyone talks about Sean McVay as this guy who 
has these zone running schemes and look what he did with Todd Gurley and then he got rid of Todd Gurley and look what he did with Daryl Henderson and look what he did with Cam Akers when he had him and all that stuff that we talk about and you know we branch off to Kyle Shanahan and the Mike Shanahan offense like we put McVay in this box and yet he totally reinvented the offense last season based on what the personnel was for the Rams and are the Rams they have that capacity for flexibility the same way that like the Chiefs do and you know we like to think Buffalo does although Buffalo might get put in a box this year because obviously they just lost the offensive coordinator of the team and We'll see what ends up happening with Buffalo, but the, the point still stands. They have this capacity to for flexibility. They are doing things differently than they were three years ago. Why are the Rams not thought of instinctively as favorite in the NFC or team that we assume will win their division handily? And I don't know the exact answer because it's not apples to oranges exactly. I just started to think about what was it that made the Rams champion good last year? And can they replicate those things this season? And the answer to me feels like it's more likely that they are able to replicate it than it is not. It's more likely that Jalen Ramsey will make a first-team All-Pro, barring injury. It's more likely that Jalen Ramsey will make a first-team All-Pro, and Aaron Donald will continue to be an amazing, gifted athlete, and Cooper Cup will at least have a a top-five receiving season than it is that, say... A team that wins a championship built on Tom Brady is going to be able to replicate the Tom Brady ability every single year. And I know that Tom Brady has great offensive lines and great weapons now in Tampa. I'm talking about like the the Patriots one where they were primarily built on defense and built a system where Tom Brady could, uh, again, just make timely plays to win the sixth Super Bowl or win the fourth Super Bowl or whatever you want to point to with those uh, uh, those New England Patriot teams there or point to the Denver Broncos in 2015 or point to uh, not the Eagles. I mean, the Eagles had great defenses, but Nick Foles had like the playoffs of a lifetime. The point still stands. Like it seems easier that the Rams will be able to replicate it than say past champions. I could be wrong on this though. I don't know exactly what goes into the Rams season last year other than, hey, I know Aaron Donald should have, would have, could have won Super Bowl MVP if not for the fact that you know you have to have like a pick six to win a Super Bowl MVP but Cooper Cup was the Super Bowl MVP and Aaron Donald was so important in winning the championship for the Rams that we associate him with the same level of value as the star quarterback obviously they play different positions and so I don't know exactly what it means for the Los Angeles Rams in my mind I'm thinking why are the Rams feeling underrated this year And I think the reason is perhaps the same reason that they got there is because of what they were built on. I just don't know, and I'm so fascinated by what the Rams are going to look like. Because the Rams are now in the same territory that the Buccaneers are in, and the Chiefs are in, and the Packers are in. Although the Chiefs and Packers aren't in it this year because of changing roster. It's where they've been the last couple years. Regular season does not matter. Buffalo is definitely in this group too. Regular season does not matter. The regular season exists to get healthy for the playoffs. For Kansas City, it might be a little different this year. They got to win a few regular season games. Does not matter. Get healthy for the playoffs. Three games in the playoffs are all that matters. And you got to make sure your whole team is there for that. Especially Buffalo, who's guaranteed to walk into the playoffs. Uh, The Packers should be guaranteed to walk into the playoffs. 
And I feel like the Rams would be in that group under normal circumstances. I'm not exactly sure why they aren't. But I've just spent 30 minutes trying to diagnose why I feel that way. Kyrie Irving is so disgruntled with Green- the Brooklyn Nets that he has told some within the organization that he does not want to return to the team. And so we have a standoff here that nobody knows exactly where it's going. He is not making this about money. He wants out of there and he's telling you there is no amount of money. We want him back in the worst way. I know he knows that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work at it. The situation between the the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant is not good as far as this weekend, as far as training camp. We will see. There's been one message consistently coming out of America. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And, and that's, I don't want to be here. All right, everybody. It's that fun time of the month. I guess usually twice a month now that we get to talk about Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. We're now going on week eight of Kevin Durant Brooklyn Nets analysis. Every two weeks, it seems like we've come in here and had a, a new storyline from Shams Sharania following the Kevin Durant trade saga. And the reason it's always Shams Sharania is because Woj has that good connection with Sean Marks. And so Woj is not out there reporting a lot of the Kevin Durant news as a way to uh, protect his source a good bit. So, Sham Sharania has been informing us with most of this situation around the NBA. Fun conflict of interests as media becomes a whole slew of conflict of interests, as access to sports leagues now comes at a cost, and that cost is your journalistic credibility. And Shams is the person who's got some connections within the Brooklyn Nets organization so that we get the news... Well, I guess also with the Lakers, we get the news that the Los Angeles Lakers are willing to give up both first-round picks now for a possible Kyrie Irving trade as a stipulation of LeBron James signing his one-year contract extension. Combined with the news coming in that uh, the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant find themselves still in a standoff and that the Memphis Grizzlies have made the call to see what the price tag is for Kevin Durant. They're circling back around the wagon to see exactly what the price tag on Kevin Durant could quite be. And so every time we talk about this, I want to bring back out the Venn diagram. You guys know what a Venn diagram is. If you don't, Google it, V-E-N-N diagram. It's probably something that you heard about in the third grade. Might have forgotten about it since then, but basically... It's two circles that have an interlapping point here. It's uh, Another example of this would be the, uh, the meme where Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers are grasping hands and the meme where it's like this thing and this thing meet together in the middle with this. Most of you know what a Venn diagram is. I was just kind of doing that for like entertainment effects only. But think about the Venn diagram here of one circle is teams who can afford Kevin Durant. And the other circle is teams Kevin Durant wants to play for. And remember, at the very beginning of this whole saga, it was Kevin Durant, teams he wanted to play for was just Phoenix and Miami. And then the teams who could afford Kevin Durant was about 8 to 10 teams. Uh, You know, just roughly off the top of my head, it would have been the Denver Nuggets, the Boston Celtics, 
Miami, Philadelphia maybe, uh, but probably not Philadelphia. And then you also have the Clippers if they include Paul George. Uh, technically speaking, like uh, Sacramento and uh, a team that's in a rebuilding phrase like the Pelicans. Uh, people like the Oklahoma City possibility because they could just offer infinite draft picks for Durant. Basically, there's like eight to ten teams that could ever afford Kevin Durant in the first place. And Toronto is another team in that group. But basically, the only ones that interlapped in the middle were the Miami Heat. And so for two weeks, the Brooklyn Nets were basically negotiating with just the Miami Heat and trying to get this deal done. And ultimately, Miami didn't want to include Bam Adebayo, and so Kevin Durant is not a member of the Miami Heat. And so for now six weeks, it's been a will-he-won't-he standoff because Kevin Durant has not approved certain teams and no one has met Brooklyn's price tag when it comes to a trade. And so now the teams, uh, I guess it would have been now four weeks ago, we got the news that uh, Jalen Brown was someone who was included in the mix on these conversations. That was a month ago. That's crazy to think about. That was a whole-ass month ago that the Boston Celtics were announced to be included on the Kevin Durant trade saga. But Boston got in the mix, weren't willing to offer Marcus Smart, but were willing to include Jalen Brown, which immediately puts them right in the mix for a trade. You, you throw in a Grant Williams throw in uh, uh, who else would be on that team. I guess there's not a whole lot else left. I guess Pritchard and a bunch of draft picks. But basically you go Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Pritchard, some draft picks, and you got a pretty good deal that Brooklyn would at the very least have to consider. And so you're looking at that trade and you're thinking, okay, okay, it's a possibility. Will Kevin Durant accept the trade to them? And I know Kevin Durant doesn't have a no trade clause, but Kevin Durant has a, what I like to call the fuck around and find out clause by being an NBA superstar, which is, I don't want to play for you. We're going to trade you anyways. Fuck around and find out how that's going to go. Cause you just gave up five first round picks and all of your young players. What's going to happen if I don't report to camp? Hmm. What's what's going to be the end result there? Hmm. So they're stuck in that limbo and Boston gets involved. Toronto gets involved. And now we've reached the point of the summer where all of the other teams who could possibly afford Kevin Durant are circling back around the wagon. I can't remember if it was Sam Amick or someone who's an NBA reporter, um, but they also brought up the fact that Milwaukee and Denver had at least asked Brooklyn about the availability of Kevin Durant. Obviously, I don't think uh, Milwaukee was going to be able to swing a trade with Chris Middleton and no draft picks at their disposal. So it was just kind of like an inquiry of what the price tag was. Um, Denver could theoretically, it's just their offer of either Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., and a bunch of draft picks probably doesn't beat anyone else's offer plus Durant not necessarily wanting to go to Denver but like those teams are circling back around the wagon and then you got the news today that Memphis was circling back around the wagon because we already went through Miami we went through Boston we went through Toronto there now we're circling over to Memphis now we're circling and it seems like the big difference here is the gap between what the market is dictating Kevin Durant is worth 
and what the Brooklyn Nets asking price is for Kevin Durant. And there's a compromise certainly in the middle. I just don't think any team is serious about acquiring Kevin Durant right now. Like if Memphis is posturing by saying no Jaron Jackson, no John Morant, no Desmond Bain, you can have all of our draft picks and salary filler. Well, obviously it's not going to you know work out in a, in a long-term trade. And same thing from Miami. If there's no Bam on a bio, there's no trade for Kevin Durant based on what value dictates in the market. Now, obviously, market is just whatever someone's willing to pay for a player. I know that's an economics thing that I just kind of threw in there as like, a, well, it's obvious that this thing is true. It is a it is a thing that's true, and I think it's interesting how the the difference between what Brooklyn's asking for what other teams are looking for could be compromised it's just neither side is is really ready to engage because they're so aggressively eager to acquire Kevin Durant i think Toronto is is probably the the team that i would think most poised to compromise in such a position although i'm not exactly sure what that uh what the, what that looks like for Toronto and so now we're going into the third tier group of teams who have the value to acquire Kevin Durant and nece- don't necessarily have the good uh, intentions of like Kevin Durant wants to play for them. I know there's reports that like Kevin Durant would be cool playing in Philadelphia with Joel Embiid and James Harden and he'd be cool playing in Boston um, with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, which is probably not going to happen and you know, there, there's whispers of like, hey, Kevin Durant would be cool here. But the basic terms that will end up happening is wherever Kevin Durant gets traded will be a place that he approves. And Kevin Durant might not be his first choice. It might not be his second choice. It will be a place that Kevin Durant approves because Kevin Durant has enough leverage and enough value to push a trade to the place that Kevin Durant wants to play for hence why i called it the fuck around and find out clause and i'm just interested that people are circling back around because memphis can at least talk to durant and ja morant is the thing that probably connects memphis to that i don't know exactly what kevin durant's draw to toronto would be other than toronto can offer a a trade package that still leaves fred van fleet and either pascal siakam or scotty barnes still on the team i'm not sure which one they would keep and which one they'd get rid of but like you know, either Barnes or Siakam goes in a trade for Durant plus draft picks, all that stuff. Like it at least proposes an interesting possibility. And and the Philadelphia one's funny because Kevin Durant <laughs> and James Harden are, it seem like they're cool now. And, you know, the big three of Embiid, Dur- Durant and Harden would be fun to watch. I'm just fascinated by what would it take for Kevin Durant to not necessarily wave his no trade clause, but wave the fuck around and find out clause in order to play for one of these other teams. Because Miami seems to be... I think it would probably take a team being there with a trade on the table and presenting Kevin with the possibility of a trade. Which, again, I'm surprised that two months in, it hasn't gotten to that point. Part of that might be Brooklyn's resistance to negotiating against themselves. I'm not exactly sure what the rationale is behind such moves. I, I just don't know exactly why no one's gotten close to touching an offer that gets there it's either everyone in the sport is not willing to negotiate up or everyone in Brooklyn is not willing to negotiate down because right now it's just a stalemate between everyone it's like okay Miami initially wasn't interested in trading Bam on a bio well 
they're going to have to trade Bam out of bio to make such a move happen. So either they're out altogether and they're sticking to their guns, or as time goes on and the and the offer goes up, perhaps that they end up getting in on this game. I'm not exactly sure what the rationale is for for what it's going to take to to get to a trade. It's going to happen eventually as long as this is the same thing with any NBA star, NFL star, MLB star that has leverage. If you're one of those 15 really, really good players that has leverage, if you're willing to make it ugly, you can get your way out. Kevin Durant, as long as you're willing to stick to your guns, take the public relations hit, you can get out. James Harden's done it in the past. Kyrie Irving's done it in the past. Uh, Kawhi Leonard did it in the past with the Spurs. We wrote, or we, we made a podcast series documentary and we're making a, a possible book about this very story. It's happened time and time again in baseball. It happened with Giancarlo Stanton, although the Marlins were ready to move on from him in the first place. But Giancarlo Stanton blocked a trade to the Giants and blocked a trade to the Cardinals because he didn't want to play for those teams. Uh, Nolan Arenado got forced to, got a, a, a nine-year contract with Colorado, played one year of the deal, and then got traded to the Cardinals with a one-year contract extension added on to the deal. So the leverage and power is there if you're one of those players who has the leverage and power to work your way out of a situation. And Kevin Durant is no question one of those players. I'm just not sure what team Kevin Durant would approve a trade to because we've had no inclination of what that's going to be. Other than like, hey, he's cool, he's down with Philadelphia now, or he's down with Jason Tatum, or or whatever it is. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to be, and two months in, it feels like the stalemate is just going to go on and on until there's a new development, probably in the trade market, because they're not even in a place where they can consider a potential Kevin Durant trade. I'm just interested by what... It, what it's going to take to move the needle forward a little bit. Because what's happening right now is we're still in the same place we were back in July. It's just the the primary teams, which I guess is just Miami, has circled the wagon and Miami hasn't been connected to Durant in a while. And now the secondary teams have circled the wagon, whether that's Boston or Toronto. They've circled around a bit. Now the tertiary teams are circling around, whether it's Memphis or Denver, the the third tier teams that are like, we can afford Kevin Durant. We have basketball reasons for Kevin Durant to consider coming here. Would Kevin Durant ever consider playing in those cities like Memphis and like Denver, which are, you know, historically NBA doldrum cities that every now and then get a Marcus Gasol or a Carmelo Anthony. And now in Denver's case, Nikola Jokic. Uh, you know, the Warriors have circled the wagon a little bit as well. I don't know where they fit in this whole picture because the Warriors are just playing a different game than everyone else. And it's just interesting that we've we've reached this place where, where we're just kind of stagnant and there's no movement on either side. Either, like, teams getting the A-OK from Durant of like, hey, I really want to play for your team. Please give up all these assets to make it happen. Or... Brooklyn relenting on whatever their high asking price is. I, I'm not exact. Boston seems like the most plausible because they're the one who's willing to include the tier two to tier three player in a trade. And we figured out with the NBA trade value cheat sheet that we did back in early July that a, a star the caliber of Kevin Durant's is worth a bunch of draft picks 
and a tier two to three star already in the green. Because that tier two to three star on the open market would be worth three first round picks. DeJounte Murray went for three first round picks and he's a tier like four guy. Uh, Rudy Gobert went for five first round picks. Um, you could go back to Demata Sabonis getting flipped. You could point to a bunch of those like kind of fringe all-stars getting traded in the last few years. Drew Holiday included, Chris Paul included. Like you could kind of point to some of those trades in the past few years and say, this is what a tier four or a tier three star is worth. And in reality, they are worth about three first round picks. Like Jalen Brown, if he got traded tomorrow, would be worth three first round picks. And you add those picks plus Marcus Smart that's worth a first round pick plus the two that Boston would be giving in the, in the trade. You could, you've at least created a reasonable trade value for Kevin Durant and Boston makes the most sense because they're willing to include Jalen Brown whereas like Memphis won't give up Jaron Jackson or Desmond Bain reportedly in such a trade they just want to kind of gauge the they want to get back in the water and and obviously if they're going to make a trade they will have to give up Jaron Jackson and Desmond Bain in order to get uh Kevin Durant unless they just give up like eight first round they can trade five first round picks if they give up like five first round picks plus one of those guys it would probably be, you know, worth it. Or maybe they give up Zaire Williams, who was their number 10 pick a couple years ago. So maybe they give up Zaire Williams, five first round picks, and then like just Desmond Bain or just Dylan Brooks. Like Dylan Brooks, five first round picks and Zaire Williams is at least getting you in the conversation. But it gets you in the conversation, air quotes, the same way that uh, Philadelphia can get in the mix with Tyrese Maxey. Like it's not, it's uh, Tyrese Maxey and, and Tobias Harris ain't exactly like taking the cake in regards to like other teams can beat your best trade offer. But if Memphis throws in Jaron Jackson, Dylan Brooks, five first round picks and Zaire Williams, very few teams are going to be able to beat that offer. Then the game becomes, can you convince Kevin Durant to come play for you? It's all very convoluted and also not moving very much over the last six weeks. And I find that interesting that no one's willing to budge and negotiate on a compromise because Brooklyn's asking price is 10 first round picks. Teams are offering four first round picks. They'll compromise at seven. And I know part of this is like calculating what a player would be worth on the open market. Like when I say Boston's asking for 10 for, or when I say Brooklyn's asking for 10 first round picks, well, they're asking for Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam and five first round picks, which is basically like, three first round picks plus two first round picks if you trade scotty barnes tomorrow he's worth two first round picks or three first round picks even he's worth two or three first round picks siakam's worth two or three first round picks they give up four or five in a trade that's like 10 to 11 first round picks in exchange for durant in terms of value and you know toronto's only offering four first round picks memphis is only offering four first round picks and dylan brooks so, like, teams are offering four to five. Brooklyn's asking for 10. They'll compromise at seven to eight picks worth of value. And that'll be the trade. The next step will be convincing Kevin Durant to want to play for those teams. And it'll be interesting if Kevin Durant relents, if, say, a Toronto or a Boston or a Memphis is the team that ends up negotiating up and, and lets Brooklyn negotiate down a little bit. It'll be interesting to see because there just hasn't been any movement over the last six weeks just rumors of you know over the last month everyone's gone on vacation but now that Miami seems to be out for the time being 
what does Boston have to offer as a secondary team? What does Toronto have to offer as a secondary team where Durant would at least consider playing for you? What does Philadelphia have? Although Philadelphia can't really get in the mix without trading. They could theoretically if if Brooklyn... There are offers that can beat Philadelphia, basically, is what I'm saying. Maybe Durant wants to play for Philadelphia. There are offers that will beat Philadelphia's offer. Their, Their best offer will be beaten by another team. And Brooklyn might go with that instead of Philadelphia because Durant might be cool playing with Boston and Philadelphia equally or playing in Miami and Philadelphia equally. But anyway, someone will end up getting in the mix. What's happened over the last month is secondary teams like Boston and Toronto have gotten in the mix. Tertiary teams like Memphis and Denver have gotten in the mix. And no one's really moving the needle either way on on getting Brooklyn to negotiate down from their 10 first round pick asking price. And I don't know when the timeline will start to speed up. We know what the process is going to look like. I just have no idea how long it's going to take. Might take two weeks, might take two months, might take uh, till the All-Star break or the, or the trade deadline. I'm just not exactly sure how long it's going to take. The process is pretty straightforward. Like I said, it, it'll require just a negotiation between they're sitting at four to five. Teams are sitting at four to five first round picks for Durant. Brooklyn's asking for 10 they'll compromise at seven to eight they'll trade Durant and then Durant will have to approve or disapprove whatever team is making the offer that's a very straightforward process Durant knows it Brooklyn knows it the rest of the league knows it it's happened dozens and dozens of times before it's how business usually gets done so it's just a you know basic business principle it'll just take an amount of time that I don't know how long that will be But every two weeks or so, we'll provide you an update if any new situation comes about. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes coming at you every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays or Saturdays. Every every now and then, we have a Wired Up coming at you. Football season's rolling around again, so uh, we'll get the college football talk coming real soon here on the podcast Make sure to leave a five-star review, follow, check out our five-part podcast documentary series, The Fall of the Spurs Dynasty. We've had a thousand people tune into each episode. I can't believe how incredible that is. A thousand people have turned into each of these episodes. I can't believe how fantastic that is, and I appreciate each and every one of you for continuing to support this here fine program and the fine, fun things that we have been working on over the past few months and the past years, especially with this podcast, our Instagrams, our Twitters, all of our different uh, podcasts, social media, sports talk space. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, take it easy. We will talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.